that being said, always room for progress. One thing that I, I would like to uh, uh, consider for for uh, for Dr. Jamel Dean and and the staff who do the reports, you know, uh, in some of the items it just says a title of someone, but it doesn't actually say their name. Now, on the executive summary for the Board of Trustees, it does say some names, but those don't often uh, or always match up with what is actually on the document for those of, of us who read this. I think it would be nice, I mean, and, and not, not affecting uh, voting for today, for, for example, if it said author, director of infection control, to actually know who that person is, I think it affords the Board an, a, an opportunity to, to know who our people are who are spending their blood, sweat, and... Uh, 3 a.m. typing hours, uh, typing out these uh, policies and procedures. Um, so just a proposal. Uh, it shouldn't affect the vote because uh, obviously lots of time has been spent uh, drafting these, and I think those people should not be a nameless title. They should be named uh, to give them the credit. Uh, one, one other thing, um, uh, I, I suppose maybe this one is to Dr. Jamaladeen or actually any of the administrative staff. On some of our systems, uh, uh, system ones, for example, the cleaning and sterilization policy, it says that this is a system policy and procedure. And it says the responsible person is the CAO, the Chief Administrative Officer. Well, we know we actually have a bunch of CAOs in the system. So which CAO is it? Who would we identify for a system-level policy? Would it be, it just says Chief Administrative Officer, but we know we have a bunch of different chief administrative officers. So who is the ultimate authority for a AHS system policy? Question mark. You got us, don't Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I just, uh, just asked the question. The policy is applicable in all our facilities. Uh, so let's say uh, for the assigned CEO of that facility, they are the responsible person. And I think that would make sense, but, and maybe if we could just denote that on the document. Uh, yeah, it, was the, it was the system question that right. me. If yes. there's a policy that hits all sites. Right, right. So, uh, for example, the cleaning sterilization one. And uh, uh, maybe it says all CAOs. I, I, I don't know. It's just, uh, it was a point of question for me, and obviously, I think a, a point of question for others. So a clarifying opportunity might be to say the, the site CAO. Yeah, I, think, I, I think that would be perfect. Yeah. Yes. Um, what, what, uh, there was one other, there was a lot of policies. There was, this was a lot of reading last night for everybody. Um, there was, give me a pause. Any, any other trustee comment as I I'm? I do, I do. Yes, ma'am, you go ahead. So in the Drug Supply Chain Security Act, I think that's, uh, that's, page 59 or something, let me see. So at finance and then today at the full board meeting, we'll be talking about the care fusions and the dispensing thing and all of that. Like does this policy of how you stock, document, record, disperse, have any connection to what's, what we are going to be doing later during the whole, whole meeting? You know about the care fusion, there's a, there's a, mm. let me see where, let me pull out that page. It's on 57. 57. Drug Supply Chain Security Act, that one? Yeah. Uh -huh. And then, in the full board meeting, we are going to be doing like a six million signing, approving a contract for some kind of pharmacy storing, record keeping, 
thing. So this is a three-year policy, and some of that uh, goes into effect, at least in San Leandro Hospital, James, this uh, care fusion. So this policy will be amended when the new stuff comes in, or is this taking into account what's going to happen with care fusion? It is taken into account. It is taken into account. So those uh, tools, uh, I mean, the PIXIS machines and the care fusion, uh, takes into account whatever regulatory uh, uh, compliance is needed in terms of the supply chain of, of drug and medication management. And this policy is part of the medication management in compliance with the Joint Commission Medication Management Chapter. Then you're approving something, you're approving a policy before the board has approved the other thing. But it doesn't, we still do this policy. It doesn't, I mean, the tools, uh, the tools that we are using right now are, uh, could be different. So we don't need a new policy for the new tools. Okay. Okay, so the labeling and the pulling out of the medications and the documentation in the chart is all uh, standardized. Okay. Great. I have one last comment. Uh, um, so it, uh, I, I think it's beautiful how it's delineated the flow of, of, the, of, the, uh, of the policy or procedure. For example, I'm looking one on the sterile processing one. It goes to department. It goes to infection control. It now adds to Dr. Hussain's great committee, the Clinical Practice Council. There's, a, there's one that I wasn't familiar with, which was the patient care leadership team. So my question is, how come this exists in the pathway for some of these policies and procedures, but not for others? All policies that affect clinical care, and, and especially if nursing is involved, should go through the patient care leadership team, and that group uh, made up of uh, the nurse leaders of all the sites. Okay. So, so I think there were f maybe one or two, and so I, I was making that presumption as well. Right. So would that not apply, for example, to identifying malnutrition in adult patients? Yes. And I do believe this, these um, food and nutrition policies went through it, but I... So, I so uh, not according to the document, it went Department, P&T, MEC, Board of Trustees. Again, I'm just trying to identify the clarity of flow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will make sure that the dates are, if, if it went through, I do believe it's not even It's just not even identified as one of the flow. Again, uh, just the, the consistency of flow is just what, I'm, what I'm looking for. I agree. Dr. Bukat, point, if perhaps we could just get a brief um, explanation at our next meeting of How flows. When, or when something would go to each committee. Or sure. Or, you know, I'm sure there's a standard to go to the committees and then to go to the department and the, um, the you know, for example, there was two questions. The CAO first and also the, um, which committees it goes to. So that would be helpful. Okay. Yes, Trustee Banerjee. So in one, one new policy about the nutrition okay. assessment, diagnosis, and okay. intervention, it says that ensure patients identified during the initial assessment or prioritization will be further assessed. So was that not happening, like other than the initial assessment, or is it just uh, 
Why do we have a policy to say they should be regularly assessed? After the initial assessment, I just kind of thought that that would be presumed. The presumed. Yeah, when patients, you know, if the patient's condition changes, yes, then we are going to assess the patients again. But which one are you prepared to So I, let me see, it is page. Page one. No. Page one of two. No, 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 no. Sorry. Oh. It was a lot of documents. I know. I, and I made a word document of my things, so I'm kind of toggling between. What's the, what, what's the main policy that you're talking about, Trustee Banerjee? It is nutrition assessment. Oh, nutrition assessment. Okay, so that's on page 73 of in the actual meeting book. And, and yes. I guess the only thing I would note is that you know, this is a policy revision, so this is not something which is necessarily being put into place initially. Mm -hmm. um, or no, actually, it's, an it's a new policy. policy. Yeah. That's yeah. why I was wondering. Yeah. So I, I think uh, something that we continue to dialogue. I'm glad our trustees are reading these. Yeah. Uh, they make for engaging reading, don't they? Um, Dr. Banerjee, did you have your question? I, I do. Answer. Yes. Okay. Thank you for elevating my. <laughs> So with that, uh, trustees, um, we already did mo moved and seconded. Uh, all in favor of approving uh, these uh, policies and procedures? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Abstentions? The motion carries. Thank you for those uh, Those are approved. With that, we'll move into item C, uh, report discussion the medical staff reports. Um, um, and I'm only about seven minutes behind. Uh, <laughs> dealer's choice here. Dr. Magalong, Dr. <laughs> Thank you. I'm here to report um, uh, the uh, discussions at our medical executive committee meeting this month. Um, the first thing that we discussed was the uh, primary care and uh, specialty care. So there's still continuing discussion at the MEC with the demonstration about need for follow-up care for patients being admitted at Alameda Hospital, then primary care and specialist care follow-up. MEC has requested for an update of the plan and the expectations of the process on how we're going to approach this. At present, um, most of the patients that are being discharged uh, from Alameda that don't have primary care physicians um, and uh, have been being followed at um, the um, uh, outpatient clinics there have been some difficulties um, making sure that they do have uh, follow-up appointments done. So as part of the um, discussion we had, we have invited um, uh, Dr. Bavaria to attend our next month's MEC meeting to help us um, work, to help work with us on how we can address this specific issue for uh, follow-up care. What, what kind of issues are surfacing? Um, for patients who are um, being discharged from acute hospitals, especially those that are being transferred from Highland Emergency Room and admitted at Alameda Hospital, when we discharge them from the acute care setting, 
we standard practice for our, our hospital is, is to contact the primary care physician and let them know um, you know the issues that need to be followed up. But we, we are unable to do that for um, patients that are being referred out to our specialty clinics and to our um, outpatient clinics in within the system. Because what? We we have, don't have a process to um, where we discharge when we discharge them that we have a time for when their next uh, follow up appointment will be on discharge. If I if I may, so there is a not access for the community-based hospitals to directly connect to the appointment system for the primary care clinics. That, that doesn't exist now. Um, what Dr. Barbaria has shared is that they're on the verge of implementing Rubicon, which is a system that's used by a lot of the clinics in the area right now. Rubicon will be available to the community-based hospitals in a way that the current appointment system is not. So it will speak to the point that the medical staff has brought up, which is these patients are treated at the community-based hospitals, and then there's no way to facilitate getting them into the, the ambulatory care setting in a, in a timely fashion. And so in my in the report that John and I will present later, we talk about readmission rates and some of the things we're doing to prevent readmissions. This will facilitate that because patients will get into an ambulatory care setting and get care in a timely fashion as opposed to having to wait extraordinary times to get those appointments. They end up bouncing back to the emergency room. Uh -huh. So, just uh, Dr. Jamali. So, so uh, this problem uh, came to my attention about from two months ago where. I ended up seeing a patient in my clinic on Friday afternoon. I learned a lot from this said patient. Uh, we, uh, we have a number of patients who do not have a primary care, who come to the emergency room and they don't have primary care, though they could be capitated to us or to a different system. Mm -hmm. So the sorting process at the time of discharge, this is where we are trying to, uh, uh, to institute, like a patient I saw in my clinic was a CHCM patient and should go, he should be connected to CHCM. Meanwhile, what we are trying to do right now, we have our uh, same day clinic where we accommodate these patients and we try to stabilize them and uh, try to repatriate them or to get them into our system. I had another patient who was also discharged from San Diego where he lost his job and lost his private insurance. So uh, what we did, we, uh, we got him here and we connected him with the Alliance and we got him uh, the Alliance and we linked him to care. Actually, Taft is going to see him next week, so <laughs> as liver cirrhosis. So, well, this is what we're trying to do, but uh, the transition of care process for patients who don't have a primary care home is like uh, a problem that we are trying to address as much as, as, as possible. Who within the organization deals with that? Okay, please, Trustee Chuck. Who within the organization that deals with that issue? Is it kind of a one-off, so if somebody shows up at your clinic, that somebody from your clinic on your staff takes care of that, or, or how is that handoff happening? So at the time of discharge, it's the care management and uh, social service uh, department, which is under the P of uh, the EP of uh, Chile Lisbo, and uh, they have assigned people in, uh, in, the, in the hospital. Sometimes the discharge might happen uh, on a weekend, on a night, day, or patient signs against medical advice, and that you know could be a problem. But we're trying as much as possible to org or organize and integrate the transition of care of the patient 
become the LED and then and then and then the so the discharge planners are supposed to be taking responsibility to make sure that the primary care is group assigned and where they get to the question. That's correct. Okay. So, so they should have brought like a CHCM before contesting. So so we found uh, yeah we found for example uh, that patient sometimes they were calling either the wrong office or the scheduler it's not responsible so we're trying to refine this process. But the more, the more you know, we, we get into into this, and we have an escalation process, the more we can optimize right. this. this yeah. But it should really be qualified by the discharge planners who are then trying to make follow-ups or, or plan out what the follow-up needs to be. That's to avoid the readmission. Many of these patients, uh, the response is not that easy. Some of them they need some uh, accommodation, like some might have home home. Uh, home some have other other issues, so we, we really need to uh, to see. It's just like assigning the primary care physician is only part of the problem. Mm -hmm. There are other accommodations that we try to accommodate for those patients. And I guess one more question, sir. Will the discharge planners then follow up beyond that, or are they just going to present the discharge plan and then that's it? Closing the loop on, on making sure that the patient is coming. We, we don't have uh, like a process right now, uh, but uh, we are looking into callbacks for patients whenever possible. So we're looking at having such a system, yeah. especially yeah. for patients with complex care management. So otherwise, complicated. Yeah, because it would seem that you could probably avoid some of the readmits if you had a process in place where right. you were instituting additional calls to make sure mm -hmm. that people are following up either with their specialty care or group assignments or other things because probably one of the other impediments to care is, is I, I don't have the coverage or I don't understand my coverage. Yeah. So we have this for patients who have uh, like multi so we are using now a tool called a LACE tool that uh, gives us a signal about the risk for readmission. So it gives us sort of a predictive analytic that this patient is at a high risk and then we do these things. So we don't do it on every patient but we do it on the high risk patients who are at a high risk for readmission. Um, James, I'll just ask James to um, to share what happens at Alameda with high-risk patients who are asked to voluntarily um, participate in the CPP program. Yes, so the community paramedic program in Alameda is a, a pilot that there are a few communities that are doing it across the state, and so Alameda has had this pilot, I believe, for going on three years. They've had it, yeah, and... So this program really um, identifies people who may be frequent users of the emergency rooms and intervenes with them um, in a way that, that we've kind of been alluding to, to prevent an emergency room visit and improve their quality of life. And so we've seen some pretty good results. Um, it's something that Alameda Health System funded um, in large part, last year we were kind of 50-50 on funding it, and we agreed to fund it in a three-way agreement with the city of Alameda and the um, the county for the year to come, with the hope being that this will no longer be a pilot project and it will be something that can be funded via other mechanisms on a going-forward basis. But but it's something that we've invested in for the past couple of years because we believe it improves quality of life and it um, decreases uh, the unnecessary emergency room visits. Thanks, James. And Thank I would you. just end by saying that but all of these are voluntary, so to, even to Dr. Jamalabi's point, and all of these, all of these patients are, or, or discharges are going to have to agree to get follow-up, or they're going to have to enter the phone or yeah. the door. 
challenge. It's not an easy, it is not an easy thing. Dr. Maglon, please continue. Mm -hmm. Um, we also had discussions with um, our primary care clinic. Um, an update was given for the planned primary clinic at Marino Village, and the MEC was informed that the target date for opening operations around April of this year, which yeah. we're very hopeful, thankful for. Um, so currently, there are physicians being interviewed for the position, and that uh, um, questions that were asked were if from there's any restrictions to insurance, and there's none that's planned, and uh, what EHR is going to be used, is it going to be similar to the ones that are being used that are after the clinics? Please give an explanation and uh, we asked for a clarification as to who the CAO will be in charge for the primary care clinic, and I believe it was going to be under the Alameda Health Partners Correct. Um, initiative. Excellent. Um, so um, part of the discussion that we had was the, the recent change in the transition of our emergency department. So sometime in December, we uh, were informed that um, Alameda Health System contracted with sound physicians to manage the emergency room at Alameda Hospital beginning, beginning February 1st. Um, so the transition went well. Um, the, we were assured and informed that the, our emergency room would be staffed until March of 2018. And last week, um, we received uh, information and the medical staff was informed that uh, there is a change in, in management of the emergency room that uh, sound physicians and um, health partners did not reach a mutually uh, beneficial long-term agreement. So um, the announcement came 13 days after the, the transition plan. So this caused a lot of concern and was alarming to the medical staff as you know, as expected because of the plan that was already in place. Um, and uh, in February 13, O'Care um, and Alameda Health Partners reached an agreement to staff both Alameda Hospital and emergency room uh, departments. So on behalf of the medical staff, um, there's been some discussion about this and you know the concerns about you know how the uh, transition happened was discussed during our MEC meeting and you know there obviously there were some anxiety and questions that were asked about um, uh, if we're able to find um, and staff our emergency room with you know well qualified positions that are committed committed to our community and we continue to deliver the, the safe and quality care that we expect. Um, so currently, we were staffed until March of 2018. Majority of the physicians that are staffing it are physicians that have been with Alameda Hospital through the years through uh, the previous uh, medical group, the uh, California Emergency Physicians. Um, and um, we've decided to help with the transition. <coughs> And the initial plan was to work with uh, sound um, until April of this year. So because of this, you know, I'm just expressing the, um, 
the concern that our medical staff has, you know, the, the morale of the hospital is low because we have lost uh, committed physicians who are dedicated to our community that have served our community hospital through the years, especially with the transition of services that involved that happened with emergency room and radiology services. Um, so the, the general sentiment is uh, finding that trust in the system from both our physicians, nurses, and clinical staff about you know, this the transition that, that happened. Um, and you know, although these are unintended consequences, but it has affected our community hospital. So how did this debacle happen? I mean, we know that it was already a pretty in, you know, fraught situation with these long-term ED physicians and working with sound and people deciding whether to stay with the system, to leave the system, to help with the transition and all of that. So what was this such a short-term partnership with sound? Just a point of order to um, Trustee Banerjee. This is on the, the, the regular board agenda, oh. and I think it's really critical. I mean, I've been concerned as well as the, in the Alameda Healthcare District Board yeah. has also been concerned that, um, you know, in terms of compliance with the JPA and the emergency room um, ability to serve, et cetera. So um, I, I would agree with you, and I, would, I want to hear much more about this, but I wouldn't know. Would you suggest migrating this to the big board meeting? Well, we're on the agenda. Okay. Yeah, let's, let's do that, but we need to hear some you know, details about how it is. And hearing from your perspective, then, Vantage, um, uh, you feel like you you were the last ones to hear about it, it seems like. You were informed, you were, so you're not really part of the decision-making process, and that is something we need to talk about. So we'll, we'll, we'll uh, keep that as the agenda item on the on the board meeting. And I'd ask the, um, that Dr. Chu and Dr. Um, Her, Her and Megalon. Yeah, and Megalon remain for the, that discussion to share their views. Please, Dr. Mangon, keep on coming. Okay. <laughs> so um, the MEC also had discussions regarding um, the transfer center. Um, we hope that um, there's been continuing discussion that it um, also helped facilitate transfers from the community hospitals, um, needing higher level of care um, to um, Highland Hospital. Uh, at present, you know, we escalate these patients to our CAO and our CMO that needs to be transferred, but you know we are hoping that you know in the future state that the transfer center could really facilitate in, in this process um, in um, having us you know transfer these patients out for a higher level of care. At present, you know it's easier for us to transfer these patients out of the system if they have the appropriate insurance. It's much faster and efficient than. Uh, because of the challenges that we have with, with um, you know, bed availability here at uh, Highland Campus. May I ask one of our administrators to just give us a, a, a brief state of the transfer center and uh, where we're, what, what uh, is our future aspiration? Sure, uh, I'll take that. It's actually the transfer center now is under Sheila Liza uh, with care management, um, but I'm familiar with their strategic plan. Right now, um, they currently staff and take care of inter-facility transfers between three sites. What they do not do yet, and I think this is the request, is if someone has to go to Cal Pacific or another outside institution, 
uh, for a, a procedure or such, they don't do that work today. The plan, I'm talking to Sheila, is that they do plan to expand the transfer center uh, in FY19 to accommodate all three facilities to help uh, the providers with transfers outside to uh, external facilities. But John, with the current state within the system for intra-system transfers, yeah, so, uh, how, would you, how would you characterize that? Well, obviously, uh, Right now, it's predominantly from Highland to San Leandro Alameda, but we are keeping track, and Dr. Swift has the, and Sheila shared with me the, the latest numbers. Um, we've seen a threefold increase in transfers to Highland from the community hospitals. Now, threefold increase isn't a lot when you're starting with two or three a month, but now we're about at eight to ten is what I'm seeing. So still, still heading in the right direction. I apologize for my ignorance. Is the care management, is that, are those, are, are those employees or is it a consulting firm that is doing this work? Oh, that's a, that's a division within uh, division. our Sorry. health system. Okay. Yeah, they're social workers and case managements. Thank you. So, right. yeah, no, 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 please, Trustee. Now, now, remember, the, the, other, the hardship of transferring patients here, I'm sure you've heard uh, a number of surge red information over the last two months, is, again, uh, Highland is still, on average, uh, having at least 8 to 12 borders at midnight in the ED. But uh, we definitely have been trying to create capacity for, for our, external, our internal brothers here to to transfer patients to high level care here instead of picking some or some some other external site. And so who is doing the transfer outside the system? Is the patient on their own? Who, who does that? The doc? I mean, who's who's doing that transfer? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have Sheila answer them. Can you repeat the question? We're talking about transfers, okay. and, we're, uh, and John just gave a nice summary of the intra-system transfers between the three hospitals. The question on the floor relates to transfers outside the system. For example, to California Pacific Medical Center or, or Summit for a cardiothoracic surgery or something like that. Who, who has authority and responsibility, and what are the mechanisms I suppose, was that the question? Okay, so I would say that um, across the system it varies, but overall the case manager and, um, and social worker are involved in facilitating the acute to acute transfer. It's primarily driven by the attending, um, and there's coordination with the external facility on the plan of care, and then uh, the team then does all of the um, administrative work to transfer the patient out of the system. Uh, I am so sorry. I did not understand what you said. <laughs> so, it, yeah. Yes. So the question was, mm -hmm. we have, and we just heard that our care management right now does not transfer outside the system. The transfer center does The transfer the center. center. So my question was, who in fact takes care of those patients that the, the transfer center doesn't take care of. And you said it's different across the system. So do we have a systems issue that we need to look at? Is is it up to the individual? I mean, how does one know? Well, so I think it's so part of Dr. Yes, I would say it's, pri it's primarily so the that, yes. case managers that do that from the acute setting. Yeah. So it's the individual 
physician through the case, the help of the case manager. Exactly. That are, yes. Are making the transfer happen. So uh, individual physicians. They do it outside of uh, the health system. Outside of the health system. I see the puzzled look on your face. On each floor, outside, external from the transfer center, each floor has case managers assigned. Assigned. And they're the ones who are doing the work with the attendants. And so how does, is there, is there a uniform place? To call. Yeah, and I, I suppose that case manager is doing that. Do they, t tell me about the process. I mean, how does a fourth floor case manager look at to transfer a patient outside the system? What What is it that they do? I mean, is there a list that they know for cardiac, I go here for, I don't, I, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know these things. But I, I'd like to know if the systems issue, then then we can tackle that. It, so I'm not quite understanding patients who are out there floating, and and a, a, a case manager has to figure out where they're going to go. Can I try to answer this? I, I try to answer. Please. Okay, go ahead, because I was going to yeah, ask a question. Just, I mean, patients are transferred out of the system for various reasons. The major reason is to get care that we don't deliver in our system. So that decision about the need of this care is driven by the attending physician. Let's say a patient needs heart surgery. Now we know that patients need the RCP. So uh, we have to find a place to deliver this, this care. We have to connect with an accepting physician and transfer the information to this physician. And then the case manager does the logistic around the ambulance use and transferring the patient. Okay, and I certainly don't mean to, to be negative. Or no, 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 I just don't understand. Right, yeah. So if I'm a patient, is it the luck of the draw that I got a, a doctor who knows where to send me versus another doctor who, who doesn't know the availability of things outside? I mean, how does a doctor know, not all the doctors know, these are these are the places that one ought to go. Is that and this is the way it's done. And this is the way it's done. Does that come from sitting in the coffee lounge and saying, "Oh, you ought to you ought to go to this place," or is there a list? Is there yeah. is there a process that says yes? And 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 there is a list. And generally speaking, the attending physician knows where what services are rendered at a particular hospital. Like for example, they know that at UCSF. <laughs> Um, these are the services that can be obtained at UCSF, or if a patient needs to go to Altebate Summit, that this is our network of choice. Some of it also has to do with contracts. We have contractual relationships. And um, I do have to add one additional layer. It's driven by the health plan. Like, for example, Alameda Alliance will say, if the patient needs a higher level of care, and um, Highland cannot provide that care, these are the facilities where you are required to access those services. And the individual doctor is responsible to do all of that? That is correct. So it's primarily the physician, but I would say logistically, we take care of being the care management team, takes care of the logistics of facilitating the transfer. The key thing is the connection between the attending from Highland and the attending at the external facility. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so okay. I hope that clarifies it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. But it's um, trusting. Yeah. 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 Ye
for, for critical cases, sometimes the lack of knowing the attendance at other outside facilities right. does not facilitate the transfer. Yeah, that's okay. what I was trying to get at. Is how, and, how and the challenge, as Dr. Hussain is going to talk to us about, is variance, right? That the, the repository of knowledge in one physician is different from another. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ergo, variance in care for physicians by luck of drugs. So yes. I think we have opportunity here for. for yes, for, we do. But remember, this uh, our transfer center is is in its relative infancy. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, and given where it's is, I, I can't even remember how old it is. Less than a year. Mm -hmm. uh, so so I think I think the progress is actually the fact that we can say that there's a transfer center mm -hmm. is sort of. I know we're not trying to set the bar too low, but I mean, it's sort of great, you know. So I think we, we continue to have great opportunity and messaging and communications plans. Obviously, I, I think, Dr. Magalong, we can continue to work with the Alameda uh, hospitals and staff about knowing that there is the existence of the transfer center. Yes. Does it, just, uh, does it operate all seven days of the week or is it Monday through Friday? Um, it does operate. It does operate seven days of the week. Um, we use the um, uh, ED charge nurse and the house supervisor to facilitate transfers, but we have a dedicated transfer coordinator Monday through Friday. Okay, thank you. So it's I want to stress uh, that has involved. It is about a year and a half. It was uh, probably two, three months before I started here. Uh, uh, so the point I want to stress is uh, internal transfers for patients who need procedures at Highland, mm -hmm. especially when we don't have beds like most of the time at Highland, are happening now, especially with having the system-wide radiology. So invasive procedures, we bring the patient, we do the procedure, send the patient back to their bed. So it is, that's why we have an increase in internal transfer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I could just... John said something a moment ago about the number growing exponentially um, of the transfers that are coming back to Highland, knowing that it wasn't happening at all before, and so that's why it's an exponential growth, but, but we are becoming more of a system and a continuum of care, and so absolutely, my budgets are built predicated on having transfers from Highland to the, the community-based hospital, so I, I count on that. And conversely, now patients are moving to Highland when appropriate and necessary, and so that's something that wasn't really happening before, and so you said it, Dr. Bouquet, it's, it's relatively new, and so we don't want to set the bar low, but the reality is it's happening in a way now that it just wasn't happening at all before, and so I think we're moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. yeah, and the financial implications are significant yes. for us as an organization, so... Yes. Yeah. We talk about leakage and about business that's going out of the system that we have to pay for, and so we are managing that by keeping those patients within the system when appropriate and we have the right resources to do so. Mm -hmm. So I think this would be a great continuing report, and think of Sheila how what resources uh, or dialogues we can have to help you guys. Okay. Thank uh, you for all you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, um, two more items. Um, on a positive note, peer review update um, for um, the uh, redesign um, for the medical staff. We have piloted it at Alameda. It's been going on for two months now. There's some comments and suggestions from the physician to improve the process, tweak the scoring system, and um, achieving a common goal to um, get lessons learned from the cases that were reviewed, be less punitive, and um, make steps to improve, um, educate the physicians to improve care. We also have our medical staff retreat uh, with the medical executive committees from the three campuses that we are planning sometime end of summer of this year. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. Um, on deck, Dr. Hearn. Absolutely. So I'll continue on with that uh, uh, that uh, plea for the, the med staff retreat. It's again in this in the notion of trying to unify and get uh, uh, more interaction and communication between the medical staffs. The uh, the three chiefs of staff as well as the vice chiefs met um, just a couple weeks ago actually uh, for dinner and sort of like threw out a bunch of ideas and. Uh, and uh, Drs. Chu and Magalong talked about having a retreat, which uh, I brought to NEC yesterday, and everybody's very supportive of it. Um, it's partly a, a time that you know, I think physician leaders generally don't have a lot of training in leadership skills. It's not really a, a course in medical school. Um, and so having a dedicated retreat time and space to sort of learn about you know, uh, the logistics of uh, uh, and legal ramifications of having a, a unified, for having a medical staff separate from the, the hospital is actually really important. So, so we support it, and, uh, and we're very excited, and um, we hope to get some uh, some support uh, from the system as well for that in terms of space, time, etc. Um, in addition, we had our Department of Medicine report um, during our MEC yesterday, which was actually a fantastic report. Uh, the Department of Medicine uh, admits probably 90% of the patients here at Highlands. Um, and uh, Dr. Baden gave a tremendous report about all of the activities, um, and some, even though I've been here for 22 years, some of which are actually quite surprising to me, um, just in terms of like the, the depth and, and breadth of their activities. Um, they have now um, an integrated substance abuse screening and treatment program on K6, including buprenorphine uh, induction and maintenance. It's actually uh, it's some of the first of its kind in, um, in the country, and actually we suggested that they, uh, they submit that for, uh, for publication. Um, they have uh, a very active palliative care, outpatient treatment, um, hepatitis C treatment, uh, palliative care, uh, as you see in front of you, a perioperative delivery program. There's some new grant funding um, screening uh, that's really exciting. We're actually trying to develop and launch an interventional endoscopy program, which we've been trying to do for October of 2011. October of 2011. <laughs> we're looking forward to uh, uh, launching that program. Thank you so much. Do I have actual slides? Okay. Um, the next slide. Thank you. And then, in addition, there are other things that have been uh, come online, including cardiology services at Eastmont Hayward, elective CAF for coronary interventions, um, outpatient epilepsy programs, and uh, staffing during um, during the day with hospitals to help write holding orders and triage. That's in progress. Um, very exciting for us is, as emergency providers, there's a nocturnist program. So there are internal medicine docs who are on all night. Uh, to help with uh, flow, write orders, and to help with backlogs for patients in the ED. So that's very exciting. Um, in terms of uh, highlights from their internal medicine residency program, they're adding a fourth chief resident next year. Uh, they're dedicating a lot of efforts towards population health. Um, they just got a quarter million dollar grant from the uh, from Solidown uh, Primary Care uh, Foundation to help with uh, training for the underserved. They're starting a new health justice pathway, which is actually really interesting as well. Mm -hmm. and, uh, in, and in addition, they just uh, they announced their fellowship matches in the last month, and they have uh, six of their graduates going into fellowships uh, across the spectrum of specialties, cardiology, infectious disease, renal, pulmonary, uh, hemolytic, HIV. Um, but what is notable is that all six got their very first choice uh, at some amazing places, Sloan Kettering, uh, UCSF, but just some really stunning things. So uh, it's very, uh, very laudable the efforts of the Department of Medicine. Um, and then uh, some minor things for the end, uh, just 
our medical staff credentialing and privileging database project is ongoing with uh, uh, online practitioner portals and that sort of thing. So not, uh, not uh, too dramatic there, but it's a really exciting thing from the Department of Medicine and, uh, and from a med staff point of view. Excellent. Thank you. Any questions for Dr. Hearn? Thank you. Of all the wonderful things that you have listed, is there one thing that you would pinpoint that will have the greatest impact in improving the system? Thank you. Um, well, there, there, there's a few ones I always throw at the top. Yeah, no, I think it's good. I think it's good. Um, one of the things that I think is, is probably uh, there are system issues that are that involve. I'm going to have to give you two answers. I'm sorry. Um, the system issues that involve overcrowding are dramatically helped by the Nocturnes program um, because they are here in the middle of the night. We always had docs were on call that you could wake up, um, but no one actually physically uh, in the ED or in the hospital to help with codes on the floor, codes in the ICU, writing orders, and and providing direct supervision sort of in real time with uh, with uh, medicine residents. Health orders, and oftentimes they were backed up, you know, five or six or ten patients in, and they couldn't get to any of those orders. So, in terms of a flow issue, I think that's probably the most dramatic thing that can help the system. The thing that I think, from a financial state, and I think that this is something that we've, um, it, we're, uh, everyone is acutely feeling, um, the issue of an interventional endoscopy program. We transfer out a lot of patients to CPMC and other places to do what's called ERCP, which is a procedure. Uh, and that's a hundred thousand dollar bill each time, something like that. Mm, probably a little bit less, but yeah. not cheap. <laughs> not cheap, and we strongly transfer out you know dozens of patients every year for that. Um, and if we were to to create that as a system with wide level intervention, I think that could have some dramatic benefits. Thank you. Any other questions for Dr. Hearn? <coughs> Thank you, Dr. Hearn. Dr. Chu, clean up. Yeah, uh, yeah, we uh, we brief uh, most of that uh, has been uh, covered by uh, the two uh, uh, chief of staff already. And uh, yes, uh, we uh, I mentioned the medical staff well. retreat in the MEC, and it's well received, and we're looking forward to it, and uh, hoping that we have support for that. Uh, two things that's uh, unique to San Diego Hospital is the rehab project uh, that's is ongoing now. Uh, we have closed down the third floor and that uh, significantly reduced the amount of uh, inpatient beds available to uh, the ED. So far we've been doing fine, but um, I think the, uh, the the front of the project is gonna hit our next winter uh, uh, busy season when we have a high admission rate. And, we're, uh, well, from the statistic, we have 163 days out of the year that will exceed uh, the census will exceed amount of uh, big capacity that we have right now with this reduced uh, big capacity. So um, that being said, uh, I think we need to work on our special you know, inner facility transfer uh, um, project. <laughs> and uh, we need to have some uh, automatic uh, criteria. I, I know uh, during the busy season, every facility can be overwhelmed, but no, how much overwhelmed was the hard number? That, no, you, you, you're only two overwhelmed, we're 10 overwhelmed, so we should transfer some over. Okay. Uh, I think no, that's one project we need to work on. And the other one is patient experience. We've been uh, working on our patient experience uh, with uh, under leadership 
of our chief nursing uh, executive here. And uh, we're going to focus on e uh, early running and focusing on um, uh, making uh, the uh, nurses staff accountable for our patient experience and we're hoping to improve our patient experience. Okay. And I think uh, that's it for my uh, report. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Chu? If, if I may, <coughs> I guess I want to just provide some, some clarity to some of the things that Dr. Chu said. The report that was provided uh, mentioned that in the past year, for calendar year 2017, there were 162 days where the census was above 33. And so that literally, in the house, 33 patients. Um, the number of days where the census was above 54 was one. Um, when we shut the third floor down, we will have 39 beds available on the second floor and nine beds of ICU. So we'll actually have 48 beds in total, but 39 beds on the second floor, which, um, so th there will be sufficient acute med surge beds for the vast majority of the days of the year, but we will be fully utilizing the second floor. There will be days to the point that Dr. Chu is making where we will not have sufficient med surge beds. And so we are actively talking about how one, the transfer center can facilitate transfers to Highland, but more realistically to Alameda where we have more capacity. And um, so that's something that we're in the planning stages of right now so that we can respond with a, a plan versus just kind of a ad hoc, ad hoc. Um, but I, I just want to be clear that what Dr. Chu was saying is, is accurate from a numerical perspective, but we have plans in place to accommodate the census um, that we anticipate having. Um, but there will be days when we're out of beds. James, are our rooms now single, single bedrooms? They are not. They're not. Correct. And so we have, in the past, utilized them to the extent possible in single bedrooms because it's a, something that patients like. Yeah, um, and I know we were competing with other places that had single bedrooms. They so do. Um, we have had the third floor closed for almost the entire last month, and prior to the high census period in December and January, it was closed for most of October and November as well. And so this is a, the current state is the state that we're used to. It's not optimal. Patients don't particularly care for it. The physicians don't like it because they they have to work in more constrained spaces. So we've been doing some things to try to accommodate the physicians and make more workstations available for them and to give them more workspace. Um, so I think we've addressed some of that. And we're also looking to cohort patients more efficiently and so we don't put somebody with someone who they would not really on a personal level want to be with to the extent that we can to say that as gently as possible. So we're doing a lot of things to try to mitigate the impact of having to utilize the rooms as doubles all the time, which is what it amounts to. Jim, will you refresh first the, the, the length of construction project? 16 months sounds something yes, like? Yes, we anticipate 15 months going into the 16th month, yes. Okay. And the third floor will be unavailable for the duration of that time. And full construction during the Joint Commission visit. Yes. <laughs> he said with a face. So I think I would make a plea for hazard pay for myself. <laughs> yes, that is correct. Okay. Um, any other comments for Dr. Chu? Or questions for Dr. Chu? Dr. Mayo, you had something to say. James, that's your main question. Okay. All right, uh, team, thank you very much. That closes out Section C. And wow, we are 15 minutes ahead of time. If okay, is everyone okay moving right into our SBU quality metric report, gain a little bit more time? Is everyone okay with that, or does anyone want to take five? All right, game on.
for trustees, uh, I, this will be on the screen, but it begins on page 116. Uh, I have actually slides to present. Oh, I apologize. So I, I did not see it. I apologize. That won't take up. You get your 15 minutes back. We won't take 15 minutes. Okay. Um, so this is a report actually from um, I'm giving this report on behalf of Graduate Medical Education. The uh, designated institution official, uh, Dr. Snowy, is on vacation this week, so I am uh, giving that report uh, from the perspective of Graduate Medical Education and not from the Chief of Staff. Um, GME at Highland has a number of different residencies uh, represented. This is the emergency medicine residency. This is representatives from general surgery, uh, from internal medicine, uh, and I believe the, pri and the primary care program. So there's uh, the ACGME, which is the national body, which is the accreditation council for graduate medical education, uh, has a program in which they do visits to institutions that have residencies about every 18 months. Most visits are called the CLEAR visits, and this CLEAR stands for Clinical Learning Environment Review. It's basically, instead of, we used to have individual visits from the ACGME for each residency. Emergency medicine would have their residency visit, and surgery would have their residency visit. Now, a lot of that information is provided online in terms of procedures, and satisfaction, and work hours, and that sort of thing. But the CLEAR visits are actually take a picture of a much more broad perspective of what the institution does to support residents. And so there are various areas that the career visitors look for and uh, in areas in which they, they have inquiry. What is on patient safety, what is on quality of care, transitions of care, supervision, specials, and of course well-being. Um, patient safety, there are a number of different uh, areas where we address patient safety goals. Uh, we, um, from a residency and teaching standpoint, we talk about the national patient safety goals, and this high-risk medication, two patient identifiers, on site, et cetera. Um, from a quality of care perspective, the emergency medicine department has done work in terms of medical ultrasound and cardiac arrest. These are just uh, a smattering and, a, and, a, and some um, examples of some of the projects that have been uh, uh, studied and, and have been created over the last few years. Uh, domestic violence screening from EMS, working on sedated patient safety, transitions of care, uh, code bag, uh, QI projects. We just saw the code bag uh, about 30 minutes ago upstairs uh, for that code. So a similar types of uh, things for that. Internal medicine has been working on improving dis activating discharges before noon, mammography screening, uh, current supporting incentives, colon cancer screening, and primary care communication for admitted patients. Um, every year uh, for the last two years, uh, we've had a quality forum, which is actually really exciting. What we do is we have the seniors, the graduating seniors, present their topics. This is one of the seniors uh, last year, who's now one of our ultrasound fellows. Um, but the topics are uh, both from medicine, uh, in emergency medicine, internal medicine, emergency medicine, uh, surgery, as well as um, the quality department as well. So deep vein thrombosis, uh, code debriefing, your analysis of STD testing, so a lot of different really exciting uh, projects. And it's great because the residents get involved, uh, they stand up in front of the, the whole, uh, the, the forum is open to anyone. We had about 200 people attend last year, uh, and the forum this year is on May 23rd at noon in this very room. One of the things we talked about for transitions of care are different uh, mnemonics for uh, improving the safety. SBAR is a pretty widely known one that was carried over for the military. I-PASS is a different mnemonic based on sort of uh, preserving information and, and passing it on. Uh, we 
talk about in this visit that inspectors will ask about supervision and what the, what the classic supervision is of each of the different residents, if they feel supported, if they feel they have access to attendings uh, in the midst of uh, um, their clinical duties. Um, also, discussions of professionalism, well-being, um, and uh, sort of what the next steps are. Um, so the next steps, uh, we're preparing for our next clear visit. We had our last one about a year ago, so we anticipate one in the next six to eight months. Uh, there's a lot of preparation from the GME standpoint in terms of making sure that it used to just be those six categories. Now they have about 10 subcategories in each of those six categories. So we have about 60 to 80 uh, topics that we have to prepare and, um, and let our residents know how we're achieving all of those um, so that when they're asked appropriately, um, we can move forward. One of the big challenges in our last clear visit was the integration of the departmental quality projects and the hospital quality projects. And that's something we're actively working with uh, with Dr. Hussein in terms of sort of promoting more resident work on the, the hospital-based projects. Dr. Arnes, by recollection, is it true that, that Claire also uh, interviews uh, executive leadership as part of their business? Because that is correct. It's a combination of interviewing program directors, residents, the GME directors, as well as executives. Excellent. Um, make sure that the story is aligned. Yes. And make sure that everyone is on the same page. We're all telling the same story. <laughs> um, we are a quality uh, committee here, so I, I would ask that uh, if you could have this uh, our board be invited to that uh, to that GME quality form. I think that, that would be great if you wouldn't mind sending an invitation to our board. I think we will have that invitation sent out momentarily. Awesome. Thank you. We would like that. Okay. Oh, no, I think once Swap had got one for the senior residents to share their project here at PPSC, but we'd love to come in here. It, it's, a, it's a great it's a great form to see actually the great work which is kind of homegrown here uh, by many of our house staff. It's great. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hunt. I'll try not to overlook you next time. Uh, all right, we are still ahead of time. So with that, I apologize to everybody for stepping out, but we'll, go, we'll jump into our SBU quality metric report. Uh, Dr. Jamaldeen, uh, Mr. Chapman, Mr. Jackson have the floor. Okay, um, trustees, uh, thank you for the opportunity to present this information. Um, I'm certainly um, looking forward to Dr. Jamaluddin as well as uh, Ms. Eliza helping inform this report. Sorry I have to step away for just a moment, but he'll be returning shortly. This first um, completely illegible slide is the, the acute care dashboard, um, and that is the dashboard for the combined S acute care SBU, which is Highland, San Diego, and Alameda. In the pocket slides at the back, you have the dashboards for the individual facilities. You can kind of pull it apart, but but we're showing you the roll-up slide, and I, and I think um, many of these metrics we're going to be delving in deeper later on in this slide presentation. But just to give you a sense of these are the under the pillars of the organization, these were the metrics that we felt were the key drivers to making sure that we were achieving the, the pillars of the organization. And so in access, that is the observed to expected um, average length of stay for the facilities, um, sustainability, um, expenses per adjusted patient day, full-time equivalents per adjusted occupied bed, and worked hours per, per adjusted patient days. And quality, the post-op DVT um, over PE, um, acute all-cost 30-day readmissions, we're gonna go deeper on that one. Um, inpatient acute med surge falls per 1,000 patient days, um, which is not our we don't go in much detail on this report, but I would offer that that's one that I'd like to see us go much deeper with 
in future reports. We can talk about it verbally here, but there's not data here to speak to that. But John and I and, and Chu as well can talk about the work we're doing to address patient falls in the acute care setting. Of course, um, you have the CADIs, um, you have C. diff um, reduction, and then we have the patient um, satisfaction scores, the HCAP scores. Below that are the watch metrics. Those are the ones that are not metrics that we are scoring and we don't color code them, but we believe that they are key drivers and so we have them as watch metrics for the organization. This is um, pertaining to HCAPs and so on this slide what you see are the, the key HCAP scores and to the top left you have rate the hospital 0 through 10 and um, the black line that runs across is the Alameda Health System average. And then to the far right, you can see the um, all hospitals in the um, Prescani database. And then you have the California hospitals at, at the very far right. Um, what I would like to share with this to provide a little context is that um, that is the roll-up um, scores. But you would perhaps wonder why our scores are consistently lower than the other facilities. And so I think it's important to note that our goals for the hospitals were, um, Prescani helps us arrive at the goal because the goal is based on what we scored in the year prior. Um, Kinsey can certainly articulate and help me explain this. But so for Alameda Hospital, the baseline for last year was 61.1. The goal for this year is 64.2. So Prescani believed that we could make uh, almost a three-point increase at Alameda Hospital. Our year-to-date score is 68.1, so actually well in advance of what Press Ganey thought we could realistically do, so that, that's a positive thing. Um, similarly for um, um, Highland, the baseline for last year was 74.5. The goal is uh, 73.6, and the actual year-to-date is 76.2, so we are doing well in advance at Highland of what was anticipated by Press Ganey that we could do. And then finally for San Leandro, the baseline last year was 62.8, the goal was 66, and at San Leandro we are at 58.5, so that's the only facility that's seen a reduction. And um, there are theories that we have about why we've seen that reduction. Um, we're doing some very specific actions to address that. One of the things is what we talked about earlier, which is the cohorting that we're putting patients in rooms where they don't have singles now. And so um, I appreciate uh, the trustees acknowledging that most people want private rooms. And so the fact that we can't offer that um, because we've been closing the third floor for, you know, um, reasons that I can go into, but we've been closing the third floor, so we're putting patients in tighter spaces and it's louder. We know that there's more noise on the second floor and the third floor is not open. So that's a, a key driver for us. We also don't think we're rounding with consistency because we know hourly rounding is a key satisfier because people don't have to push their call button if somebody's coming in and addressing the key measures that we know they need addressed. So we have put a, a management person on the second shift because we know that the staff are more likely to run when there's a manager on the unit. So we now have a manager available on the unit on the second shift. And frankly, we're going to be doing much more directed, um, I don't want to say discipline, but I'm going to say discipline. So staff that we know that are not doing the hourly rounding and not doing things that we expect of them, they will be getting coaching and counseling in a way that wasn't really happening before. So. James, um, I, I see some questions popping up, and Trustee Lawrence had a question before. A question to you, is it your preference to give the entire presentation, or is it okay to take stop marks along the way and ask you questions? I'd love to stop and take questions. Okay. Trustee Lawrence, uh, I saw a question was brief. Yeah, the brief. dashboard, yeah, I hate this stuff. So the colors jump out at me that clearly we have twice as many um, 
reds and yellows as we do greens. So is this directly related to what you were speaking about in Sandy Andrews' issue impacting this? Or why, why? I mean, there was no comment about all the reds and the yellows and what those, what those issues are. So the, for the experience, that's at the bottom part of the top chart. And so you can see that from an experience perspective, we've got on this chart, three reds and one yellow under experience. So where I'm referring to is, oh, this doesn't show. Um, but if you look at the experience box on the far left, and then you run across, you can see where I'm referring to. Don't, don't take the experience. Take the dashboard okay. and look at the total dashboard. And I, I want to know if I'm reading this correctly. When I look at the whole dashboard, I see more reds and yellows than I see greens across the board. So you honed in on experience. I, I'm trying to understand the gestalt of this whole thing. And is this okay to see these yellows and reds? Should I be concerned? Should you be concerned? Uh, if the goal is to get to the greens, and we're halfway through the year, we're not, we're not there. So, <coughs> happy to. So I would, for the purposes of what you're saying, I would then focus you on the year-to-date column because the results column is for the current period. And so I think that is an indicator of how we're trending. But to get to the bottom line, as you were kind of suggesting, it's really about what's happening in the year-to-date results because that's what we'll ultimately ju be judged by. And I think that you see that um, it's a little different. Um, there are a lot of grains in the far right column. Um, and there are reds which are alarming. That's not where we want to be. Yellows suggest that we're very close. And so I am pleased by the amount of green and then two more yellows. And so there are actually one, two, three, four reds in the far right column. And you've got four greens and you've got two yellows. So to that point, there's more green and yellow than there is red. Okay, okay, I'm seeing. So one was the, the month. And the final is the date, and we're in Okay, thank you. Certainly, thank you for the question. Um, I, I want to pause and give my partners an opportunity to shoot anything you wanted to add. Just would you take a 30 second and give us a 30 second educational primer and remind our board of trustees what a top box score is because this this is a run chart for top box scores. It is. Yeah. I, I'd be happy to, but I'd like to defer to Kinsey. This is for Kinsey. Give him 30 seconds so we can all. Oh, okay. Yeah, because the top box. You know, yeah, people are saying oh, we're 65 percent. What does that mean? Okay, the top box is the number of patients that actually gave you a score of nine and ten. Yeah. On a scale of zero to ten, okay. so that's what is referred to as the pop box. So when you see this, what you are seeing is rate the hospital, uh, the Fulmer method, rate the hospital, and rate the hospital is scored on a scale of zero to ten. And the only things that are counted are nine and ten. So an eight, right. you get no eight doesn't. Yeah. Because yeah. mm -hmm. Jamie's so, funny that way. So these others are key drivers. And so at the end of the day, the top box is the one that really is kind of the money shot, but the others are the ones that Prescani and Alameda Health System believes are the key drivers that, met, that result in what we get in the top box score. Right. Can I? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I, 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 to, uh, I mean, going back to Trustee Long's basic question, high level question, you know, what is keeping us up at night? 
and you know what are we doing with the reds at the high level and wardens uh, know you know this high level question i don't know can be if you want to talk about it like in terms of uh, we talked enough about patient experience but about patient harm quality of the admissions these are like now i know we are trending in the right direction maybe in some areas i know we're looking at the system level and various problems various areas Maybe you can give a small summary about our strategy. So I think um, someone famous once said that a few sentences can tell the truth. When we're dealing with complex issues, a little later we'll give you the narrative of falls. Um, falls had been uh, in the red for six months. Complex tasks like that, you have to drill down to a few sentences that tell the truth. Foundational elements that provide guidance about how to navigate complex issues. Two things. We have to, as a system, identify and endorse what is our standard best practice, our true north, by which we will all hold ourselves accountable. Two, minimize variation and assure adherence to those standard best practices. Two simple guiding truths. And we'll tell the story if we have some time about two of the um, measures that are in red and quality um, around falls about how we apply those two principles and a standard continuous quality improvement methodology to address a complex task focused around what is our agreed upon best practice and what are the systems we have in place to ensure we drive adherence to those best practices. And how do we utilize data in a way that drives actions and decisions which help us get to that true north? How do we build local champion models where we deliver actionable data, clear standard practice in the hands of local champions that drive change? These are some foundational elements that I think um, will help as we analyze some of these problems. Um, I don't know if you want to talk, want me to talk more, but um, let's let Mr. Jackson finish his report. Thank you. We observe to expect the length of stay. Um, very busy chart, but what we're trying to illustrate here is in the dashboard we talked about the, the ratio, and the objective is to be at or below one with the observed to expect in length of stay. And so you can see on the left for each of the facility, well, the system was in the upper left. And then um, for the balance, you can see that the observed length of stay for each facility and for the system is on the left of the charts, and then the expected is on the right. And you can see that pretty much across the system, um, the, the well, observed, there's something that stands out here. Very much it, it jumps out at us. So, yes, except for one so, episode. Yes. So, uh, again, this has been, we brought this up exactly. multiple times, that in San Leandro, yes. the observed length of stay is so much less than what's expected. And then you go back to the dashboard and see the 30-day readmission and see how high it is in San Leandro. So is there a correlation there? I would say yes. There, there is a correlation. The length of stay is, and we've observed that, is relatively low. And we, as a result, we have had bounce backs come back in. 
and we have a better understanding. We did put a, a PI project in place to understand why patients are returning to San Leandro. Um, but I wonder if we should wait until we get to the readmission presentation. Mm -hmm. Or should I address that now? Well, I was just going to ask that question because you raised it. It is, when you look at, is the readmission rate in comparison to this, is the readmission rate higher in San Leandro than any other place? Yes. They did show that, yes. And that would be the really compelling overlaying data. Because if you look here mm -hmm. at Highland and Alameda, we have never met expected lengths of stay. Never. We've always been above. Mm -hmm. Where it's the inverse, which is very curious at San Leandro. Mm -hmm. It's really curious. Either either it questions whether the data is accurate or what what are the underlying fundamental issues behind the data. But they've always been below length of stay. So, so, so the question, if you look at the slide, this is San Leandro's um, breakout. And if you look at the um, readmissions, you can see the point that she was making. Uh, the baseline last year was 12.92. The target this year is 11.87, I believe that is. Um, the year-to-date result is 12.39, so it's, you know, it's still red. It's over 11.47, but it's lower than we were last year. But in the most recent period, again, when we had the very high census, it's at 14.8. So it, it speaks to what she was just saying. We're close, but we're not there um, in terms of our readmission rate. Is there any factor earlier, James, you described the, you know, the conditions, the two, two beds, rooms, the noise, etc. I was there. Is there any relationship for me as a patient saying, get me out of here, and the doctor saying, okay, I'll let you go early? I know that's silly for me to say, but that's, as a lay person, I jump to that to say, I don't know, I want to be in a in that environment. So is that, does that have any kind of... It does. We, we do experience that. And so I, I could not tell you that I know of every instance of that, but we huddle every day. And so we hear the anecdotals like you're referring to. And there are some patients who say, I want to go. I don't want to be here anymore. If, they are, if they're cohort of the patient who is screaming all night long, uh -huh. um, we do our best to try to get them out of that situation. But some people say, I just don't want to be here. Um, Dr. Chu probably could speak to that, what he hears from his peers. And so that does come up at the ABC. Doctors are concerned about the fact that patients cannot have the single rooms that they used to have. And there are instances where we have patients who are disturbed and they act out and that is disconcerting to the other patients. That being said, there may be some processes which are working very well at San Leandro Hospital. So as I say, good data begets better questions, right? So I think mm -hmm. this is so curious. The data is really Can curious. I just clarify, I mean, we are going to talk about the trajectory admissions, but there are some processes at San Leandro that are a little bit different right. than one is that they have a very uh, active ambulatory surgery, vascular surgery, with very short admissions. These patients get admitted for one night in the day. The other thing is when we have a patient who um, has a bed, gets admitted immediately, they go upstairs, and then they get discharged the next day. Whereas at Highland, there is no bed. They have to wait. And sometimes they get discharged from the ED before they get admitted. So this uh, like short stay is incorporated in the basic question, is the discharge or transfer of care at San Diego is safe? That's, that's the basic question. This is where we are data mining and looking mm -hmm. at, at this. And this is where I think she Sheila... Then the question comes up to me is, why would you show, and this is an accusation. I, I always phrase things 
in a way that sounds like your accusations, and I, I really want to know. Oh, we learned the question. I appreciate the question. Well, why would you show a board um, data that you're not comparing like to like? So your perfect example of vascular shorter people shorter stays. And there's no sh there's no vascular surgery in these other data. So skews this. So why why would I pay attention? I mean, it, it, you show me data that for it doesn't have any merit to me. So so let me just. Uh, I mean, certainly the intention is not to confuse the board. Uh, but, well, uh, it's just machines. Right, right. No, no, but certainly the intention is not to confuse the board, but we are trying as much as possible to get those processes and data uh, in, a, in a meaningful way and standardized way. But let me just tell you, uh, the observed uh, incorporate the CMI index, so it does try to correct for this possibility by using the observed. Uh, it, you know, so we try as much as possible to, to, to try. The other thing is that we have uh, a documentation uh, ability in the private practitioners that drives also the CMI index to a higher level. So the CMI index in San Leandro, uh, which, which drives the observed, is also quite high. We like to, we like to, to go to the next slide, yeah. the CMI is on the next slide. So, uh, yeah, I mean, as you can see, the semi-index in San Diego, it has been improving for Highland. So all of these, like, we affect the data. There's one other major factor that may be skewing the data. Guess which hospital has the highest number of observation patients? San Leandro. San Leandro. Okay. So uh, I've actually asked the data uh, analytics team to see if the observation days on our patients are in there, which would definitely skew it with the average length of stay. Well, they should. All right. I, mean, I think that takes us back to trustee Lawrence's point. How is the board supposed to interpret this data when you can't compare? When you can't compare, you mean there's so many. So, you know, you show this, and I, I'm frankly very frustrated. Yeah. Public education is many of the same things. You get these, the data about kids, and you think, what? But so I just don't. I, I look at this stuff, and it doesn't ring true because you're you're measuring different things from different hospitals, and yet you're comparing them publicly. And it, uh, I'm I sorry, I just don't understand. I get it. I suggest that the, as we evolve, looking at average length of stay, we start doing it by DRG. Comparing cases of pneumonia, cases of, right. and then we can compare across the board. And maybe that would be a rotational uh, type of presentation uh, for the acute SB in the future, comparing like to like DRGs. Right. Mm -hmm. This case mix index slide is very interesting because we're having this dialogue about San Leonardo being shorter, but their case min mi mix index actually looks to be somewhat superior yes. or, or, or higher. Mm -hmm. so Higher than, than than Highlands, which which I, I, I'm not sure that comports with the feel of the physicians, Dr. Hearn. And, and I agree. And one would think it would be higher, but it really is. Yeah. So San Diego has both the highest case mix index as well as the shortest what length of stay. Case mix so great, well, this is a great educational point, Dr. Jamal Dean, if you want to educate your board. So this is an index that takes the diagnosis of discharge and the discharge summary. 
and the higher it is, the more complex the patient. This is a very important index for us because it uh, documents our, uh, how sick our patients are and from a utilization standpoint and also from financial projection standpoint. Which has an impact on expected length of stay as well as compensation. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So that's a very, very important thing. Just as context, Kaiser Oakland, in this case, makes index is 1.47. UCSF is 2.09. Uh -huh. So it's sort of kind of blowing us out. San Francisco General is about 2.0. Uh, St. Mary's 1.72, UC Davis 1.86, so, so uh, you know a little bit higher than ours. This probably relates to how we code, we document, how we document and code. But so that's that's the layer of the complex layer. Uh, so so this is again another promise of Epic, where you can get the you know many of our patients come in with you know the joke is it's a Highland patient that has seven medical problems, but you just not mark down the, the top problem CHF when it's also CHF and diabetes and you know rheumatoid arthritis and et cetera et cetera et cetera. So that's one challenge, and uh, uh, I'm happy to see the trend line going up on the case mix index because uh, we believe that our patients are quite sick here. And, and it's probably not accurately reflected. CMS is also including, correct me if I'm wrong, also like the socioeconomic factors in terms of the observed or expected length of stay more into their indicators. Yes, this actually, so I sit on a number of national committees for Medicare that are grappling with issues around measurement because of the exact reasons that you've articulated, which is that um, the, the balance is picking measures. Um, which are nationally standard and benchmarkable, which have all the flaws which were highlighted in today's conversation, versus creating homegrown measures that don't allow us to benchmark ourselves to national other national counterparts. The problem with picking benchmarkable measures is that we don't get to define them. They're defined by national agencies that have all the flaws that were articulated today in the dialogue. And, um, and, and that's, a that's a tension that not only we are facing, but the entire nation is facing, especially when dollars are associated with the performance on their measures, and that's why you're hearing a lot of dialogue and pushback. So I think as we look at the measures, the question is, as we're dialoguing, what is the kernel of truth behind this? What is the trend? And where are the areas? It's, it's meant to, I think, uh, stimulate dialogue to identify that kernel of truth because we will not be able to find a measure that means every stakeholder's interest and that's that's the challenge absolutely james apologize for keeping interrupting you no no great dialogue <clears throat> so the um again readmissions and so that was a part of the prior conversation and you can see that the facility with the most variability <laughs> is in fact semi-annual um, and so that may contribute to some of what the, the discussion that we were just having. Um, so this is um, a slide about the readmission reduction strategy, and it speaks to the work that's going on um, across the system, but specifically at San Leandro, to reduce uh, readmissions. And so there, I won't read each point to you, but I think it's um, important to note Dr. Jamaldeen spoke to the lay score um, earlier, and so you can see that that's one of the bullets, um, and that was uh, implemented in December of 2017, and so really using those metrics to try to um, identify and prevent readmissions. Um, the very last bullet, Well Springs Pharmacy, what we found is that HPAC patients um, are now going to the community-based hospitals, but the physicians there can't prescribe for them because they're HPAC. 
and the physicians at the community based hospitals can't prescribe to HPAC. So the Wellspring Pharmacy um, option will allow these patients to get their medications in a way that it was somewhat haphazard previously, and we believe that their not having consistent access to their medications was driving some of the readmission. They weren't getting medicated post-discharge in the way that they should, and so we think that last bullet is going to help address that dramatically. You want me to comment? Please. So, yes, let me just comment because we've had, um, we've done a lot of activity at uh, San Leandro regarding uh, the readmission reduction. And one of the, um, I believe, effective strategies that we implemented was the concept of interviewing the patient, the readmitted patient, when they come into the hospital so that we can get a better understanding from the patient's perspective of why they returned. And so with that interview, we created a scripted format for the communication with, um, with the patient and the family, and then developed a more effective plan of care. And with that plan of care, we're able to um, document and track so that we can report out on what are our findings. Are we finding that patients are coming back in because it's medication related? Is it because the home care agency didn't come in and see the patient as expected? Um, is it because they've had transportation or lack of follow-up appointments? Um, so as a result of that, we have our care transition nurse at San Leandro that then places a plan in place for the patient at discharge. So we get the patient into their follow-up appointment, assure that the discharge summary is transmitted to the primary care physician, and then the Wellsprings Pharmacy, what they will do is they deliver the meds, so it isn't just for health pack, but they deliver medications for all readmitted patients, and then they do a um, post-discharge follow-up with the primary care for 30 days. And that's the effectiveness. And I would say probably January now, our readmission rate of San Leandro has actually dropped to 10%. So we've seen dramatic improvement um, with our strategies. And so we've been working at this since November. Um, and then the last piece is the home health referral. So what we found on average, um, San Leandro, we were using about maybe 5% of the discharges, discharging with home care. And so for a hospital that size with this discharge, we would say probably about 15%. So we are at about 14% now of the discharges. So we increased the, the number of home care referrals um, to the home. How does that readmission rate compare to national benchmark? It's actually much lower. And it depends. I mean, the, the national, we're talking 18, 19%. On the prior slide, there's a national benchmark line. Okay. The hash. Uh, yes. So I think that's a great plan. Quick question. So someone just walk me through. So we're, we're trying to discharge someone. We, we engage a lay score. On yes. Them. So so if they are at a high lay score, which is predictive of readmission, is this when you engage the 30-day transition nurse? Uh, or, or what do you do with a high lay score versus a low lay score? Okay. Because we, we built an algorithm. Okay. So for each of its high, medium, or low, we have a list of interventions okay, that the case manager and social worker is to engage in. So it's a standard plan? It's a standard plan. Yeah, that's all. That, that is correct. Now, it's fairly new. We just, rolled, um, we just went live in December. So um, now it's a question of ensuring um, standard work is in place. Got it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And, 
and last question, on the readmit when you interview them, are you using a validated instrument? How are you acquiring those data? What are we doing with those data? That's pretty rich data. Yes, it is. So what we're doing, actually, we use the IHI um, template. Great, OK. Yeah, so that. For multivariate analysis, we can figure out what, 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 the, what the lever points are for that. Yeah, exactly. And we have, um, we're using the MIDAS data set. OK. So we've created a standard profile, and we can actually see month to month where we're having our challenges and what we can do about you know, some of our findings. And actually, that's how we decided to work with Wellsprings on pharmacy, because we realized medication is a big contributing factor. That's awesome. OK. And that is the conclusion of the presentation. Thank you so much, Shane. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Uh, next. It's not agendized, but I see slides from you. So there's time. I'm happy to present. I, um, I think we can. I, I think we can make some time, and then Adrian has a risk management report. Adrian, how long do you think your report is? Five minutes. You were actually given twenty, so let's let Dr. Hussein take five minutes of yours, if you don't mind. And then very good. Um, and then there's a slide here uh, update on clinical practice uh, counseling. We can dialogue if Dr. Uh, Jamal again wants to do it or I'll do it. Um, <clears throat> so there was some uh, uh, um, commentary on this concept already. And um, we are doing a lot of internal work within the quality department and also externally thinking about what does it mean to be doing clinical quality improvement because we know that more and more um, uh, uh, this will become essential to the work we do, not only for our financial sustainability, but really for the care that we deliver our community. So there are two fundamental concepts that I think uh, we are trying to socialize as a department. One is, um, so here you see, ooh, oops, I uh, see a red line, um, a red curve, um, and shifting it forward. That is movement from what is current practice to best practice. And that is, so to do that, we have to acknowledge, develop consensus, standardize best practice to move it forward. And then once we've established best practice, we really have to minimize variation and ensure there's adherence to best, adherence to best practice. These are some two fundamental concepts that you'll see that we have really adopted in moving forward in our uh, work. So um, this is coming out blurry, but you saw in the um, acute SBU presentation um, documentation of the falls rate. So those falls rate are benchmark using CalMoc, which gives us a national benchmark. And our dialogue with our stakeholders, which included um, uh, nursing leadership, and I, Kinsey and I work very closely together on this work, because nursing leadership, the chief um, uh, administrative officers, and local champions on the floors, what we realized is that that high-level data point every month wasn't, get, it didn't change action because it wasn't at the fingertips to drive care. So we have to now take high-level data and drill it down into the hands of the people who will use it. So here we produce a daily dashboard that identifies where the fall occurred on each of the different units. In addition, what we realized is that when a fall occurs, there's a delay. There had been a seven to eight day delay um, between the fall occurring, it being entered into our event reporting system, and it being reconciled. That process of reconciliation is critical to understanding why the fall occurred. I'm happy to report this dashboard looks like it's um, from the 3rd of February. I'm happy to report that that seven day reconciliation period is now less than two days. And in addition, last month we had 36 falls. 
This time last month we had 22 falls. Today we're at 11 falls. 50% reduction compared to last month. So what changed? We're going to go into that. So one is delivery of data that drives decision making. From a monthly report to a daily report that draws exposure to key processes at the key, at the key places. So the Everybody wants to do a good job. So we're creating exposure to who are the highest performers, who are the people that can learn from the highest performers, and we're meeting weekly as a steering leadership group of nursing leaders, of operational leaders who discuss these findings. So here's the uh, improvement data. Then we realize that we, until we get some electronic processes in place, it's, tr it's difficult to get process data. So we know we want to reduce the outcome which just falls. But how do we then draw exposure to the key processes? Right? We have best practice. All but patients should... I'm yes. sorry. Give me, give me an example of a process. The way you pick up a patient, the um, way you do... Yes, exactly. So we have fall kit. A fall kit for a high-risk patient is they need to be... They, we need to have visual cues. They have a wristband, they have a blanket, they have a star, they have non-slip double-sided socks. So that any person who's on that floor and engages with that patient knows this person is a fall risk. And the transfer from the bed to the wheelchair, from the wheelchair to radiology, from the wheelchair to the toilet, visual cues that remind us that they're a fall risk. Um, so we see that when we first started this process, even though we, were, we knew that was best practice, only 56% of patients who were high risk had adhered to that fall risk mm -hmm. packet. Today, at last week when we did rounding, it's at 100% in every single setting. Well, because it's not electronically gathered, Kinsey and I do executive leadership rounding where we spot check the quality program nurses on my team do this weekly at every single one of the settings. It's manual rounding. But that's also an opportunity to do teaching and education. But the assessment, how do you get the assessment done for the patients? Oh. Determine which ones are the ones that are the So there is, I'm going to show that in just a second here. Um, the other thing I just want to draw attention, we also, there's a critical level of awareness that needs to be had that this is important. So we have identified local champions in every single one of the units who have created visibility boards. The number of days since the last fall the number of patients who fall within the last week, and that becomes a center of the huddles and the pass-offs that occur between the nursing leadership. 100% of our spot random uh, secret shoppers that we did with staff on the floor knew the number of falls and the last fall that occurred. So what are, I'm going to skip this slide because I know you want to see this. So what is, this is what we're calling a bundle. What is a bundle? A bundle is a quick summary of what is best practice, and behind each of these are our tools. So assess. We all, this, is, this has been well defined by IHI, AHRQ. You have to assess the patient. Behind assessment, there's tools. So um, <clears throat> there are, depending on the setting, there are three different assessment tools that are used. So every time a patient gets admitted to the floor, the nursing staff do an assessment. Every time the patient has a fall, there's a reassessment. The fall score triggers the use of the fall kit, for example. Okay, so assess. Second, we've got to engage. So we have begun doing that work. We have to engage the multiple disciplines, not only nursing and physicians, EDS, the patient. The patient needs to be educated that they are a father. Family members need to know to help with that process. 
three is enact. I'm going to show you the intricate box for enact. Monitor. We know that we have to drive adherence. So that is the quality program nurses rounding. That's Kinsey and I rounding. That is, you heard about the purposeful hourly rounding. So the nurses are doing purposeful hourly rounding, but they also have an opportunity to continuously get coaching on doing it better. So that has been in really incredible engagement from our nursing leadership doing that coaching with their staff. You can't see the next portion, but that's report. That's the driving down from seven days to two days and learning all the causal investigations that we do to figure out why our falls occurring. So we've identified some really interesting things, bed alarm settings that we can standardize. The sound, not only the sensitivity, but the sound. Striker cords that deliver information from the beds to the central um, uh, uh, nursing station. Even things like the size of socks. I mean and the stocking of the fall kits. All of this is rich information that we've learned in two months. So here is our enact. Here is the, uh, here's all things that at-risk patients should get and all patients. Universal precautions are things like we need to make sure that the floor is not wet. We need to make sure that the bed is low, that the rail is up. Purposefully, out, purposeful hourly rounding. This is what the nurses do every hour, uh, or we're reinforcing that this needs to be done. We need to ask patients about pain, placement, their possessions, position, and engage the patient, right? Not only does this have important consequences for falls, but it prevents other hospital-acquired conditions. Nurse leader running, which we talked about, the protocol, the kit that I talked about, the socks, mat, band, blanket, star, that happens if you get triggered into the high-risk setting. Shift huddles, the one-to-one um, -one care. So this is a part of an act. We are embedding this in and hardwiring that this is an expectation that not every, not only everyone needs to know, but they must do. Here's a list of all the activities we have done, we have, uh, done in the last eight months. You can see around data. Driving consensus was key. This dialogue that we just had about the definitions, if you can't get consensus that the data you're getting is something that should either inspire you or incense you, it's not the right data. Right? If you look at it and you don't care, it's not the right data. So the way that we've delivered data, I think, has been critical in driving things. Um, personalization of the data, making sure that they have it daily in their hands, that it can be posted on the visibility boards, and then coming up with a strategy to monitor adherence. If, if it takes us rounding, that's what we have to do because it's that important. Engaging, creating the false champion model around the unit, having the visibility boards. We get automatic email alerts now. The second there is a fall that's entered, the leadership team gets it, the false champions gets it, Gassan gets it, the CEO gets it. This is something that requires high visibility. Falls education, the nursing leadership are working on ensuring that not only that the new nurses get education, but those sitters that sit at the bedside with the patient need to understand the significant role they play in patient safety. Getting EBS engaged, enact. We repackaged the fall kits because we figured out that some of the socks were too big for the patients, and that was causing a fall risk. Um, <clears throat> purposeful hourly rounding, we, the patient care leadership team is really reinforcing that. We've collected sitters data. There was speculation that the reason that falls were occurring were because there weren't enough sitters. Guess what data can do? We collected data on, was a sitter present, or did you need a sitter when the fall occurred? Guess what we found? In no instances did a fall occur because there wasn't a sitter. But that is a speculation that that uh, that might have derailed our focus. With two months worth of data, we proved that that was not an issue. It keeps us aligned. Monitoring. 
We have quality program managers, uh, program managers rounding each week. We have executive rounding, nurse leader rounding, um, and now we're structuring the debrief. So this is the way which in which if we standardize what is best practice and we continuously drive adherence to that best practice, we can create a 50% reduction in falls within eight weeks. Keep your fingers crossed that we can continue this journey, this commitment, uh, and report back to you some yellow and green numbers next month. Last mm -hmm. presentation, mm -hmm. classic mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. All right, wow. trustee managing. How, how does, does your team work with the compliance to make sure that you know that? How, how where is that connection? Yeah, so actually, um, Adrian is on my team, mm -hmm. um, and then the rest of my team is sitting back here. So uh, we have quality and analytics that report up to me. Uh, we have infection that's represented by uh, Annette and Hazel, I think, just stepped out. Uh, infection con uh, prevention and control is Deborah Ellis. Um, and then we have risk and accreditation, so they all report up to me under quality. So yes. when, when a fall happens and you're doing our CEOs and yes. everybody is This in. is why putting this model together mm. was, it, it's, it's not only risk, but it's what is the role of the frontline nurse? What is the role of the physician? What is the role of EBS? What's the role of operation? What is the role of uh, facilities and management that orders the fall kits? Mm -hmm. right? it's, but it's that we're all part of this work together mm -hmm. and we're defining those roles. Excellent. Excellent. As I say, 21 days to a habit, right? So <laughs> keep on going. Um, thank you for your report, Dr. Sain. Adrian, sorry for keeping you waiting. Um, uh, for the board, just to, as a FYI, Adrian's uh, report, which you'll probably give up there, is also in your packet. It's in the closed session packet, page uh, 7 of 69. I'm just going to have to look for it. There's only two slides, though. So, um, do you want me to look for it while you're yeah, 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 sure. So the, the high levels, you, you've got a lot of detail in the package, but the high level summary is that for the acute SBU, the overall reporting volumes are stable. Um, the median days to close is now within the target of 10 days. So that means both risk management and the department managers are performing to the standard that we asked them to and reviewing the events and closing them within 10, within 10 days, which is a huge step forward from where we were six months ago, where it was as long as 30 or 35 days. So we've made some great strides forward there. The primary risk does continue to be medication events. Um, the, the overall volume is down and the, the incidence of harm within that is low. Um, and some of the events that are reported are totally procedural errors that don't reach the patient, but it's really important for us to know where those gaps in the procedures are. So although in the, when you, if you look at the dashboard and the packet, the, the, event, the, the event totals might appear alarming, the harm is very low in there. Um, we have seen an increasing trend in patient relations event reporting and I'm pleased to be able to share with you that there's been a huge increase in concerns and complaints and a reduction in grievances. And we've talked before about this and what that means is that when a patient complains, we're fixing it in real time. Mm -hmm. So we're still recording, we're making sure that we know that we get, we're getting a, a concern or a complaint, but it's not escalating to a point where it becomes a grievance because we've not fixed it. Mm -hmm. So that's great and that talks a lot to patient experience, to how we're rounded and to all of the other things that are going on in the house. Can you give an example of a maybe a couple of the kind of complaints that might come forward that that you would you would document? Um, sure. Um, 
a lot of the complaints that we receive are from the ambulatory setting um, globally, but within the acute SPU, we see complaints around delays in discharge or delays in um, people answering call barrels or people um, or people not getting the information that they're asking for in ways that they understand it. Um, so it's, there are things that we can fix in real time and the evidence has shown us that we're, we're managing to do that kind of thing. We do make some complaints about um, the professionalism of physicians and nurses and um, the leadership in those departments take those very seriously and work with um, the staff involved to coach and counsel and to help um, with service recovery with the patient. And the complaints come at, at when you say real time, versus um, at discharge? It's a mixture. Um, oftentimes the complaints are taken, the intake of the complaint is from the nursing staff at the bedside or the physicians at the bedside. Patients call the risk hotline to make a complaint. Um, they, people, they find the number and they call us and that's fine. And our, all of our team are in my, within my department, um, including mine from my, um, from my project um, administrative assistant right up to myself, the director. When, when someone calls the risk hotline, it rings on everyone's phone, so there's always someone to pick it up. And so I've taken complaints, and I've taken the intake of complaints from patients and their families, so has everyone in my team. Um, so it's a, there's a real mixture of how we receive them. Yes, sometimes we receive them on discharge, and sometimes we receive them post-discharge. Um, and that, they're the more worrying ones, because they're the ones that we receive in writing that we have to um, we have to really work with the patient to try and do the, the better service recovery with, to maintain their trust in the organisation. And the minimum days to closure continues to improve there, and we have some statutory requirements for a 30-day turnaround in there. But the overall primary complaint in the acute SBU is the quality of care. Um, the last slide just gives you a really brief overview of the dashboard. So you can see that um, from the, this, the figures here, um, from a baseline from 2017 to our current year today, we're seeing a, a volume are steady and have increased from the beginning of this time period. The harms are reducing um, overall. Um, the last two months looked a little higher, but overall across the year they're falling. And the times um, from event to close um, have really dropped significantly. And for the patient relations reporting, we're looking at similar trends. Um, and the last, the graph at the bottom, just the, we added the red line so that you could see the trend as opposed to having to try and figure that out yourself across three, each three-month period. Mm -hmm. um, we felt that that would be um, helpful for you to see that trend. Any questions? Adrian, how do you interpret the pa increase in patient uh, relations reporting? The fact that the nurses are in the room every hour, the fact that the nurse leaders are rounded in the room with patients in real time, yeah. the fact that we have been, my team and the, and the rest of the, of the care management team have been out there um, talking to patients more and asking them how, how we've done, yeah. and being, being, being honest in the way that we ask the question. Right. And the nurse leaders run these patients daily, and if the patients have concerns about the care we're delivering, they do do the service recovery immediately. Yeah. 
uh, I, I say that with a smile, uh, uh, credit to our patients and credit to us for giving them a forum to, to have, the, have these things. So I think that's a, I think this is a good thing. In each the old day, days, they didn't have a way to complain. Each, complain, each grievance is a gift to us because it gives us a way that we can do something better next time or that we can communicate effectively because sometimes we don't need to do something differently. We just need to explain why we're doing it. So again, each time someone brings something to us, it's a gift. Well, as they say, all feedback is a gift, especially the painful stuff. <laughs> Thank you for your report, Aiden. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so this will go into item F, planning calendar, uh, plan, planning calendar and issues tracking. So um, March 11 through 13, most of the board uh, will be going to a board of trustee retreat. Uh, there will be plenty of discussions about quality there. I think Dr. Melody will be joining. Is that true? Uh, the retreat, the conference, yeah, yeah. and yeah. I think Dr. Hussain will be joining, so I think that's good. Our next QPSC is uh, Thursday, March 22. Um, Dr. Hearn, you'll give us the date for the GME Quality uh, Forum. Uh, uh, will you, can you send it to, to yeah. me? You can forward it on. <laughs> this one is May 23rd. Okay. May 23rd. And that will be here? That's correct. Okay. Um, any other calendar items from the trustees or, or, or in this yes, I, I just want to uh, share with the board the final chart of the Clinical Practice Council that is uh, approved. It is, okay, uh, there was a little bit of a discussion because this will have a lot of uh, implication on the implementation of the electronic health records. And board members, this is page 139 of your package. This is 139, yeah. So basically, uh, the work starts on the far left with uh, what we call the clinical standardization work group that will have a presentation from the three medical staff. Uh, the, the, the outcome or the workflow will go into the system PIT uh, committee, and if it has no uh, pharmaceutical implication, it goes into the clinical practice council and then from that it will go to the all three MECs and if uh, it is approved and does not need any policy change, it will be implemented. If it needs policy change, then it will come to the Board of Trustees QPSC uh, for approval of any amendment or change in policy. So this is at a high level how this works. We are going to have about 400 uh, workflow related to the implementation of electronic health records. Uh, those uh, workflow uh, come, will come from the foundational library of EPIC that is based on the experience of about 300 organizations. However, we will have input from our uh, uh, providers and nurses in the clinical standardization in the system PNT and in the clinical practice council and of course the input from the MEC. So if it has no implementation of uh, uh, policy or change in policy, uh, it will be implemented. But if there is any policy implementation or amendment, then it will come to the Board of Trustees. And then it will be included in the report of the MECs to the Board of Trustees in terms of what is going on with this on a regular basis. Thank you, Hassan. To the Chiefs of Staff, how, how is this, this is a completely new process for our organization. How has this been received by the respective men? So, um, at Alameda Hospital, there's been a physician engagement. I know there's two physicians that are actively moving with the CPC Council. We, we Dr. Hussein explained in the MEC meeting the workflow. There were some questions.
questions about specific local policies, how do we handle? It's been clarified that you know the need for to work to CPC and what what areas we identify, whether it's a true policy, a procedure, or just a guideline. So that that helped a lot uh, when Dr. Hussain met with our MC to um, you know, uh, explain the workflow. Excellent. Dr. Hearn, Dr. Shu. Uh, our MEC is, is, is grateful that the, the process is streamlined. We're seeing fewer policies that we have to go through without, um, yeah, without sort of really digging deep in areas that we have no expertise in. So we're really glad that CPC is taking that on. It is a, it is a large time commitment uh, for our clinicians, and that is a, that is an ongoing challenge. Many it's four hours every other week, which, you know, which is a big time sink. Um, but we are uh, we are grateful for the process. Yeah, uh, if this is progress. We're, we're willing to embrace it. Uh, again, uh, uh, for community practice physician, it is a, a big time commitment. Uh, I mean, uh, adequate representation is is a challenge. So we'll we'll keep that on Dr. Hussein's task list of things to consider. And remember, the goal isn't perfection; it's better, right? <laughs> okay. Um, so thank you for everyone. Uh, we'll end with item G, uh, report from uh, General Counsel. Yeah, so the uh, board met the closed session, approved the uh, credential reports of those uh, physicians who met the qualifications for credential by each of the medical staffs and took no other action. Thank you. And with that, the gift of time, five minutes early. Uh, grab some drink and food. Thank you.